welcome to our second week in the book of Habakkuk. Have you found it in your Bible yet? Have you practiced your pronunciation? Habakkuk. Habakkuk? Habakkuk. Last week, we learned that Habakkuk is embedded in a history. It is a book of prophecy, and Habakkuk, the prophet, lived and spoke during the end of the kingdom of Israel. A once mighty nation is now facing their final defeat, and Habakkuk has a conversation with God in the middle of this particular time and place. We learned that prophecy is not foretelling, but that prophets were the mouthpieces of God. They spoke on behalf of God to a nation that needed to be reminded of the covenant that they had made with God, a covenant that was supposed to organize their society and define the way they lived with one another. But the kings that ruled over Israel during these times ignored the covenant. And while some people carried on their lives as though everything was still hunky-dory, there were those in the nation that recognized that things were not as they should be and told the truth about it. And included in those people were the prophets. Now, one of the ways that the prophets told the truth was through lament. Lament was a structured way of bringing a complaint to God, a way of being honest about terrible feelings and terrible circumstances in conversation with God. And this is what we find Habakkuk doing in the first couple of chapters of the book, lamenting. In fact, the book opens with Habakkuk complaining to God right off the top, and then God answering, and then Habakkuk complaining about God's answer. And this is where we're going to start our teaching today. I got glasses when I was in grade five. And while at first I loved that I had glasses, I soon learned that having glasses can be a pain. They fog up during gym class, and when a basketball hits you in the face, it really, really hurts. You can't wear sunglasses, you get a funny tan in the summertime, and when you put them down and lose them, your mom is super annoyed with you. Contacts changed my life when I got them in grade eight. But what really changed my life was when 20 years later, I got eye surgery. For over 20 years, I had to have my glasses on to see my hand in front of my face. I had an alarm clock with the hugest numbers on it so that when I rolled over in the night, I could see the time. It was like having a perpetual sunrise in the bedroom. Everything and everyone was a blob of color. But after I had healed from the surgery, I had 20-10 vision, which means it's better than perfect. I could see all of the road signs without my specs, including the little ones that say the street names from like a block away. My kids and I used to have competitions to see who could see the furthest, and I always won. I like to say that I have Superman vision, that my vision is so good I can see through clothing. So just make sure you have clean underwear on when you're near me next time. After I had the eye surgery, I began to see life as it really was. My vision was crystal clear, but also my eyes became super sensitive to light. I remember coming out of hiding after healing from the surgery, and it was about this time of year, and my eyes just watered and watered in the sun. 
I still have a hard time with bright sunlight, even on a cloudy day. I often need sunglasses to keep me from squinting and to keep my eyes from running with tears. Clarity of vision also brought with it pain. Habakkuk also received vision. Listen to the first couple of verses of the book. This is the message that the prophet Habakkuk received in a vision. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Everywhere I look, I see destruction and violence and I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. Habakkuk receives a vision. He gets metaphorical eye surgery. He sees things clearly and it leads him to complaint because all around him, he sees violence. And not only does he see violence, he also sees that when violence is done, there is no recourse because the law has become paralyzed. There is no way to get justice because Torah, the law that God set up in the covenant to enable the flourishing of Israel's society is being ignored. And so there are these levels to Habakkuk's complaint. Not only is there violence everywhere, but the systems meant to bring justice are perverted. Instead of stopping violence, they have become a part of the system of violence and domination. But the truth that most stings in Habakkuk's vision is that he has been calling on God to step in and set things right and God does not listen. It's like God has forgotten them altogether. If Habakkuk can see violence, can't God see it? And if Habakkuk can see the lack of justice and want the remedy, shouldn't God want that too? And this brings us to one of the main themes of not only Habakkuk, but also the scriptures and our own lives. And that is the Odyssey, which is a fancy way of saying the problem of evil. The problem of evil is basically this. How do we believe in a loving God when there is so much evil in the world? How do we hold these two opposing forces together? Like, have you ever tried to put two magnets together when they're not attracted? You know how they twist and turn and try to get away from one another. And no matter how hard you try, you just can't get them to snap into place. That's a picture of what it's like to struggle with the problem of evil. What Habakkuk reveals is that part of the way that we faithfully struggle to align or make sense of these opposing forces is to lament because lament tells the truth about the world and our lives it tells the truth about the problem of evil but it is addressed to god so lament tells the truth about the evil in the world but it also refuses to count god out you see if if we eliminate god from the struggle 
which many people understandably do, we still have bad things happening. And perhaps then we're called to reimagine or recreate our justice systems, but we don't have an existential or a spiritual problem. We eliminate the problem of theodicy, the problem of evil. We remove God, we remove one magnet. And so all we have left is the truth that there is evil. We don't have to figure out the problem of why a good God allows it. We just have a fact. There's evil, but we don't have the odyssey. In a way, we've solved the problem of evil. Tish Harrison Warren says this, if there is no one to keep watch with us, no one we can trust to look out for us in the nights, then anything that happens, however good or bad, is sheer chaos, chance, and biological accident. But belief in a transcendent God means that we are stuck with the problem of pain. Lament also sticks us with the problem of evil because it tells the truth about how bad things can get, but it tells that truth to God. And so lament is an expression of belief because lament refuses to eliminate the problem. It refuses to eliminate God. And so lament is actually an act of trust, which makes me wonder, do we allow room for people to tell the truth about their struggle, to make sense of God's perceived absence in the middle of hardship? Do we count this as faithfulness or instead, do we want people to skip through the problems of their life with a platitude or a smile on their face? Are our churches the place where we come to be happy instead of a place where we can tell the truth? Or when someone comes out the other side of their struggle, all healed and whole, is it then that we say that person is faithful? Or do we make room for the fact that the struggle is itself faithfulness that telling the truth about life being difficult or even downright awful is actually a step of faithfulness, especially when it's directed to God. Do we think that the faithful person is a positive person? The person who always has a word of encouragement or an answer on hand, who can always make two plus two equal four? I would argue that if someone has never had to admit that they couldn't do the math on their life, that they can't make sense of it. They are either not telling the truth about the way things actually are, or they have somehow eliminated God from the equation altogether. Now, I wanna make clear that lament is not a general attitude of crabbiness, which some of us struggle with. Some of us are pretty good about complaining about every little thing that comes our way. Lament is not a generalized case of the belly aches. So lament is not, mm, that guy cut me off, or the lady in front of me in line at the pharmacy is taking way too long, or my kids didn't empty the dishwasher last Tuesday, which are all real examples from this girl's life. Lament is instead, my child is in danger because of the color of his skin. My partner died. I feel so alone. I am sick and I won't get better. 
Where do you need to tell the truth? The truth about who you really are, about what you're really up to. The truth that that thing that happened to you is awful and unfair and shouldn't have happened. Where do you need to stop pretending that things are not as bad as they really are? Or where do you need to stop avoiding your own feelings of tension and dissonance? Where do the magnets in your life just seem to be trying to fly apart? Where is the place that you want to believe that God hears, that God is good, but you just can't see the truth of it in your present circumstance? That is the place for lament. You see, lament not only helps us tell the truth about our lives, but it also forms us to hold this tension and it forms us in conversation with God. So Habakkuk complains to God and his complaint actually brings an answer from God. God is going to deal with the injustice and violence that Habakkuk sees all around him by bringing the nation of Babylon to invade and overthrow Israel. And Habakkuk has some feedback to offer God on that plan. The conversation continues, and this is what Habakkuk says. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins? But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? So Habakkuk is basically saying, what in the world, God? What are you thinking? This doesn't make any sense. Habakkuk argues with God because God is using an unjust means to bring justice. The Israelites have gotten it really wrong, but Babylon? How can God use a nation even more evil and treacherous to do God's bidding? It does not make any sense to Habakkuk. Which brings us to another function of lament. Lament is an antidote for idolatry. Habakkuk here is trying to pull God back into the ways in which he has always understood God. God is their God. God does not side with other nations against Israel. This is not the way things work. The silence of God was bad, but this answer feels even worse. Maybe if God is always telling us what we want to hear, it isn't God we're hearing but just an echo of ourselves. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. We don't always like what God speaks to us and we don't always understand it. Left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God that we manage to understand. When God answers Habakkuk, it isn't what Habakkuk expects to hear. It isn't how Habakkuk understood God to work. God is revealing that God is up to something new, something the Israelites would never have expected. And as Habakkuk replies, it becomes clear what his assumptions were of God. 
and how God is inviting him to see God at work in ways he could never have imagined in the past. Here's an example from my life. Two of my children are adopted. We brought them home 15 years ago this summer when they were three and six years old. And when we brought them home, I was obsessed with finding out more information about them, with filling in the blank years, the years I felt I had lost. It broke my heart that I did not have memories of them being little. And one of the places where I felt that most acutely or where that landed was that I didn't know their actual birthdays. Now, as I brought this to God and worked also on the side to find the information that I thought would make me feel better, what I began to realize was that the real issue was not that I didn't have all of this information about my children, but that I thought I was owed it. That I thought as a mom that I had some claim to every single moment my children had ever had. I had fallen into this belief that if I could control everything about my kids, know all the right information, feed them the right food, take all the right steps, dress them in the right clothes, bathe them with the right soaps, read them the appropriate number of stories every night that I would produce these perfect specimens. And not being able to control those lost years made me feel like I couldn't control the outcomes for my kids. And I hated it. As I lamented these real losses, my lament revealed that I thought God was going to support me in Project Perfect Kids. And what I realized was that God was up to something completely different in my life and in the life of my kids. And as I was able to let go of those expectations, I was also able to open up to where God was in that situation. Lament reveals and strips away the systems and control mechanisms we have used to order our world and to make sense of it. And it leaves us abandoned to whatever God will do next. It opens us up to God as God is. Instead of demanding that God be who we need God to be or who we thought God was or asking of God things God never promised. With lament, words become a way of telling the truth but also of exposing the truth about what or who it is we really trust. We realize that we have trusted that we could be perfect parents and have perfect kids, or we have trusted a certain relationship, or we have trusted our resources or our smarts, our can-do attitudes and our hard work ethics. We have trusted our capacity to learn, to grow, and to always be getting better. We have trusted our ability to be our best selves. Lament exposes these things in us, but as it does so, it also opens up space, capacity in us to trust God. Prayerful lament becomes a collaboration tool because it leaves room for God to act in new ways as we tell the truth, allow our idols to be exposed, and then open ourselves up for God's response. Pete Enns puts it well. He says, Lament dares us 
to risk letting go of a well-behaved and predictable system and swap it out for one where faith and trust in God, not certitude and order, are the beginning, middle, and end of our journey. And this is what Habakkuk does. After he complains to God about the coming of the Babylonians, he says this, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Habakkuk uses the image of climbing the city walls. What causes him to climb the tower, to climb the ramparts, is this tension of holding those magnets. The truth that there's something to complain about, but also the belief that God will show up. It is in this place where Habakkuk waits for God. And I can just imagine Habakkuk looking over one side of the wall and surveying the city of Jerusalem, the place where he sees violence all around, the place where he sees corruption and trouble and wrongdoing. And then he looks to the horizon, waiting for the answer from God. He waits for the arrival of the Babylonians and, as it happens, God's answer. This is what keeps him on the wall. The place where we need God most, the place where we wait for God to show up, becomes a place of prayer through lament. It becomes a place of waiting. It is like the wall in Habakkuk. Lament becomes a sustaining practice while we wait for God. It becomes the way that we stay on the wall without falling over into the reality of our situation and being drowned by unbelief and hopelessness or ignoring the reality of our situation and covering the truth with platitudes about why everything is just fine. Often, we think the places of trouble are the places we need to get out of in order to feel the presence of God, in order to find God. But Habakkuk teaches us that sometimes what is needed is to wait in the places of trouble for God to arrive. Dallas Willard said that God's address is at the end of our rope. As lament sinks us into the reality of our situation, it also allows us to ground ourselves there so that we do not miss the coming of God in the middle of it. It reminds us that the location of our pain and disappointment is also the place where God lives. We just need to wait now. We're not facing the arrival of a terrifying army, but there are places in our lives where we feel the sting of God's absence, where we wonder about when justice will be served in the world around us, and where we also feel like we are at the end of our rope. How do we stay put? How do we wait? We pray, we lament. And there are times when the old ways that once served us don't seem to make sense anymore when it feels like God has not fulfilled God's end of the deal. How do we hold on to faith? We pray. We lament. And there are times when we must tell the truth, when we need to face the facts, when we can't pretend any longer. And so we pray. We lament. 
why don't we learn how to lament together? To start off this week's practice, I have a few inspiring words from the great philosophers of Monty Python. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble, give a whistle, and this will help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the bright side of life. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Every cloud has its silver lining. Does any of this sound familiar to you? I bet it does. And while there is a time and a place to put on our positive pants, that time is not necessarily going to be in the next few minutes because as Allison said, we are gonna learn to lament. While there are several benefits to the glass half full mentality, it is possible that you can indeed be too positive. According to the Canadian Mental Health Association, toxic positivity is being positive at all costs. It's the mindset that even when faced with hardship, people should always maintain a positive attitude. While toxic positivity can be shared with the best of intentions, it does lack compassion, it shuts down opportunities for connection, and it can even exist in your own self-talk as well as when you chat with others. And this is what it might sound or look like. You dismiss or brush off feelings that aren't positive. You feel guilty or shameful for experiencing negative emotions. You're avoiding or hiding from uncomfortable feelings, or you only focus on the positive aspects of a painful situation. But maybe you're like me. Maybe you spend the vast majority of your life running away from feelings of sadness and loss. Maybe you spend a lot of energy pushing down those nasty feelings so that you don't have to feel them and ruin your Saturday morning. Unfortunately, it seems that those of us who do that are actually missing out on opportunities to connect and empathize with others, to reflect on the complexities of life, and to do some self-reflection. Maybe when you feel angry, you feel like that labels you as aggressive or violent. And when you're sad, you feel like it labels you as weak. Or maybe when you're afraid, you feel like that means that you're vulnerable. And now there's this whole new word on the scene called languishing. And people are calling languishing the neglected middle child of mental health. And what it does is it whispers in our ears that we are empty, that we are directionless, and that we are purposeless. So when these uncomfy feelings bubble to the surface, usually one of two things happens. One, we let them run loose and untethered and do not give them boundaries to exist in, otherwise known as wallowing. Or like me, we suppress the heck out of them so that they last much longer than they need to and leak out into every aspect of our lives. This is where the practice of lament can be helpful to us. What is lament though? It's more than just an expression of sorrow or venting emotion. Lament talks to God about pain, doesn't just wallow in it. And it has a unique purpose, to trust. It's a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God and who he is. Friends, I am talking to myself as much as to you. I hate this stuff. I do my best to bounce from one thing to the next, existing in perpetual motion instead of sitting in my present pain and frustrations. And I will look to the future with optimism and live in that space because it looks a lot nicer than this one. 
But last year something happened where I felt like looking forward to the future just wasn't cutting it. Last year, through a series of unexpected and somewhat unfortunate events, Luke and I ended up having to move. And I was devastated. We had just finished renovating. I loved the big trees in our neighborhood. And as we were planning on moving, I made a list of all the things I was looking forward to about our new house. But it didn't feel right. That is when I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to make a sad list. Instead of listing all the things that made me excited to move, I wrote down a lot of the things that made me really sad to move. And here are some of the things that I wrote down. I said that I was going to miss my clawfoot tub, the old beautiful church around the corner, and that one back alleyway that had all the wildflowers to pick in the spring and in the summer. And I sat with my journal and sat in this sad list for well over an hour. This was my version of lamenting in that season. And maybe your sad list doesn't sound like you miss your tub or the wildflowers, and maybe your sad list is a lot more heavy than that list that I made. Maybe your sad list will sound like this, that you are sad that you have to miss your cousin's wedding, or that you are sad that you had to attend your grandpa's funeral virtually, or maybe you are sad that you haven't been able to see your adult children who live out of province in months, or maybe you are sad that you haven't been able to hold your grandchild our sad lists are deeply personal, and it is okay, in fact, it is more than okay to give space to ruminate on these lists of things that make us sad. We actually see the practice of lament all over scripture. There is an entire book for it, literally a whole book called Lamentations, full of sad lists. And if you, like most of us, and definitely me, are in a place where you need to lament and you need a starting point, check out the Psalms. There are several Psalms that are lament Psalms that you could read through and pray through. Some of the ones I might suggest to you are Psalm 6, 10, or 42. Or if those don't resonate with you, you can always do a quick Google search and loads of other ones will come up. But let's take a look at one of my favorite lament Psalms, Psalm 13. It says this, How long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Did you hear that? That was a sad list. But the psalm doesn't end there. It continues on. The second part of a lament psalm has a different tone to it. It isn't sad, but it is a list. It is a list of things that the writer knows to be true about the character of God and his faithfulness. Listen to this. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The second part of the lament psalm focuses on the character of God and his faithfulness. Because a sad list all by itself isn't a lament. As you move through these psalms of lament, there is sort of a flow or a template or an outline to them. They start by acknowledging God. How long, O Lord? and then laying the sad list before him, your friend's wedding, your grandpa's funeral. And then they always have a but. 
and Carissa and Curtis have been telling us that we always need to pay attention to the buts in scripture. And then they either list characteristics that they know to be true about God or remember anchoring moments in their lives when his faithfulness and provision came through for them. Maybe one of those moments could be your baptism. Maybe one of those moments could be an unexpected check in the mail that you needed. Maybe one of those moments could be a text message from a friend when you were in a dark and sad place. Maybe you're in a space where you've got some uncomfy feelings that you need to bring to God. Maybe you need to take some of those lament psalms and read through them and pray through them and meditate on them as though they are your own words. Or maybe you've got something specific that you want to lament about. So here's a cheat sheet to writing your own lament psalm. Doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be fancy or poetic, but it should look like this. Number one, turn to God, acknowledge him. Number two, bring God your sad list. Your sadness, your anger, your languishing, your fear, whatever that looks like, bring that to him and lay that at his feet. Number three, ask for help in the midst of your sad list. Regardless of how long or overwhelming that list is, asking for help and seeking God while in the middle of pain is an act of faith. Number four, tell God who he is to you. Remember how he has been with you in the past, the things he has gotten you through, and be anchored in those moments and in those times. So, when always looking on the bright side of life starts to feel heavy, find rest here. Abide here. Fix your attention on God. Lay out your sad list. Meditate on who he is and find rest. Find rest from your anger Find rest from your fear, find rest from your sadness, find rest from your frustration, and find rest from your languishing. Put down your lemons, don't even think about how full that cup is, and just abide in the comforting presence of God.